Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993. Dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in our virtual studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. We are your hosts, co-hosts Ron Beard and Liz Graves, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. A reminder that during the pandemic, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking phone calls. Today, our topic is, how do we teach history in school? What are the goals of a social studies and history curriculum? The adults in a community sometimes disagree about how local and U.S. history shaped the present, what the important parts are, and what it means. How do lawmakers, school boards, school administrators, and teachers navigate all those moving parts. Our guests today are Mark Puglisi, who's a history teacher at MDI High School, and Julie Kablinski, who's the Director of Teaching and Learning for 7th through 12th grades at the MDI Regional School System. We'll start with Mark. Um, tell us a bit about yourself, how you landed as, the, as a widely revered history teacher, and what got you there, and what you love about it. Well, uh, I went to the University of Maine. That's why I live in Maine. Um, and I was originally sort of a science guy. And then I took a political science class with a guy who I think has since passed on. His name was Bud Schoenberger. And I really got turned on to that. It sort of really it was one of those things that um, made me see what I was really into. And, and then I, I plunged into political science. Political science, it is using its history turned into policy if you will part of it is anyway i used a lot of history at any rate i um i got a teaching certificate political science degree and a teaching certificate and then eventually got a job at mount Stewart elementary school as a social studies teacher and i taught there for eight years and eventually moved over to the high school um, in 1997 and have been teaching there since then uh, and admittedly, in terms of U.S. history, um, even world history, I don't think I had enough knowledge, um, even coming out of college, that made me comfortable. So I've spent a lot of time and a lot of money reading and learning became a, an obsession with me. It still is. I'm kind of a bibliophile, as anybody walks into my room would see. And uh, the nice thing about teaching something is it inspires you to learn it. Um, yeah, and for sure. Learn it, not only learn the what happened, but um, um, all I'm always looking for a different angle as to why a phenomenon happened, and particularly look always looking for stories because it is history um, to to humanize it a little bit. So anyway, I've been doing that now for. A long time and uh not just u.s history but also um uh sort of what you i guess you would call western civ um and i teach a combined class with a in uh, a language arts teacher named heather dillon that combines um literature and history looking at western civ to the present so that's kind of my journey to where we are right now awesome 
Julie, what about you? What's uh, your what's your road? What's my road? Um, I guess I was one of those people uh, who always knew they were going to be a teacher. I don't know why. Um, I started off uh, as the summer camp counselor, you know, and did the after school program shtick and thought I would be a fifth grade teacher. You know, Mr. Sequera was awesome. And um, that was sort of my mentor. And then I took an AP U.S. history class in high school and it was Mr. Martin became my new uh, mentor. And I just sort of knew that I wanted to be a history teacher. Um, and so I majored in American studies, uh, which is a a major that was made after World War II to basically increase American patriotism, you know, in light of the Cold War. And so I I fell victim to that <laughs> a major. But it was a cool major because it was a mixture of art, literature, um, all things American, government. I mean, at one point, people thought it was a government major. I took so many government classes. So I think my, my story in terms of um, content is not so much about history, but a little more about the social sciences. So the psychology, the sociology. And um, for me, it's about what makes what makes groups and organizations do the things that they do and and how are we all you know caught up in this, you know, I always quote Emil Durkheim, he's the father of sociology, who said we're trapped in a web of institutions. And so um to talk about that tension of all, how all these invisible things are pulling us in different directions and how if we see them, we can navigate them a little better. Oh, that's right? so awesome. I have a strong memory of, I think I was maybe in sixth grade and I was going around taking pictures of buildings that house institutions with their Corinthian columns. And it just struck me one day that the institutions are the people in them at the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's bonkers. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a crazy thing for a kid to realize that it's not it's not anything other than other humans. Well, it's yeah. true, but it's a, you have to remember it's also that the humans are carrying a lot of cultural baggage around with them, and a lot of the baggage that we carry. And I'm I, I don't want to be pejorative about the word baggage. I mean, it, you know, we to some degree we are. And Julie hit it on the head. You know, we are immersed in institutions. I use the word systems, economic, political, social, cultural systems. And we walk around um, in a we are numb to those systems. Generally, mostly we we, you know, we we act in a way which seems, quote unquote, normal in terms of the institutions and the society they are. It's sometimes it's worth it to sort of rise above those um that culture and try to see it like like you have to get out of it in a sense to see it and that's really one of the glories of history because when you travel through history all of the sub-disciplines that julie just talked about come into play like if you're going to study ancient rome what are you going to do you're going to study the history you're going to study the culture you're going to study the value system you're going to study the gender relationships um and we study those things individual things in particular, when we're curious about them, but to get this picture, we do that. Now, do we do that for ourselves? Well, sociologists do it sometimes, they do do it, but history is a nice training in that. So if I can study the Roman Republic, I can think that way about our Republic. I mean, I often tell my students, remind them the last creature to notice the water is the fish. And I really want them to notice the water. Anyway, so that's my thoughts on the systems idea. 
And how about a, a kind of a, a working definition of history? Mark, you talked about um, the word story being part of that. Um, certainly, um, uh, in in the past, we didn't have a written history. We had people remembering stories and telling them over and over again. Of course, those stories got woven; <laughs> they got shifted. We started writing things down. At least there was there was something to go to. Um, t- talk a little bit about a, a definition of history, if you could, and then and get Julie's perspective as well. Yeah, well, I mean, to be really technical about it, a history by definition is that which is written. And I don't want to disparage oral history or those traditions from around the world, uh, you know, but I mean, if we're going to be clear about what we mean by history and prehistory, it is that which is written. And actually, the etymology of the word is from Greek, and it means learning or knowing by inquiry, like to, to ask questions um, rather than um, so you're the, the history implies a critical eye and a finding out. Um, and, you know, the, the first great historian, if you will, from Western history would have been Herodotus. I'm sure he made up plenty of stories, but he was noted for, you know, if, if he wrote about the Persian Wars, he 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 talked to the veterans. You know, he talked to people who did it. And, and then it comes Thucydides. And these people filled in a lot of gaps. There's no doubt about it, as I think sometimes historians do. But... The, the idea is to be critical, is to learn, uh, to know and learn by inquiry and to ask questions. Um, and it's obviously about asking questions about uh, the past. And so anyway, what do you think, Jewel? Um, I guess I would just add to that. That's sort of the basic definition. And I'll just expand a little bit um, in terms of like what historical thinking is. Mark was starting to talk about that. So when we teach, you know, that type historical thinking to kids, we're teaching them about sourcing, you know, where you're getting your information. It matters if it's from, you're learning about ancient Greece from Thucydides, then through, you know, Mr. Puglisi. Corroboration, is it, you know, who corroborated Thucydides? <laughs> is he solo? Does that mean it's a, a, a questionable source, right? Um, contextualization, what was going on in the time period that may have influenced the way that was perceived or or experienced? And that really leads to historiography, right? If you read textbooks from the 1920s versus the 1970s, they write the same, they don't write the same stories about the same content. So what's happening to shape that? And then the last part Mark hit on the head was the critical thinking. What do you make of it all, right? So um, sense-making, um, given all that with your critical eye, what's the real story here? So how do we tell the difference between history and uh, kind of current events? Um, people are writing things down now. When when do we turn the corner and take all of those things that have been written down about 2022 and turn it into history. Is there is there a critical time when that when that happens? <laughs> what do you think? When does something become history? That is a great. I mean, by I guess technically it would be about three minutes ago, right? I mean, if we use a clock, you can do it that way. Um, but it's a good question, and it's a good question because we tend to think that the that reportage in the present is somehow more accurate as to approaching the truth. And, you know, and we're getting into a murky place now because we, you know, you, <laughs> there's a lot of controversy about history is a hot button topic. And it's, it's so interesting because, you know, in education, we spend a lot of time wringing our hands about 
science and math education and technology and training, all those things are very important. But when you start, when you when you start talking about what what kind of history you're going to teach our kids, it makes a lot of people very interested and very um, animated. So this thing, which is uh, sort of ethereal, and in in some ways could be put to the back burner as you know, what do we need history for? It's already how many times my students tell that right? It's already done. It actually has a real bearing, and 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 it, it comes down to this idea, I think, of what we think is true. What was the true narrative? And I think Julie gave us the tools to try to investigate that to make sense of things, right? Um, the critical thing at the end of the pipe comes from what you think is actually happening. And, you know, it's sometimes interesting that history actually helps us to actually get at what's happening at a time because the distance that you get and the ability to align all these different sources, like to gather these sources um, allows us to actually get a clearer picture of what's going on than um, than stand than being in it. Like for example, if I tried to describe the geography of MDI and I spread people across the island, and you were at Sand Beach or you were on top of Cadillac or you were, you know, in these various places, and I said, "Well, what is MDI?" You would get in Town Hill. I'd get a field. I'd get a, you know, a beach. I'd get a, a mountaintop. Um, it takes gathering those things together um and history is can be quite good for that to get these different perspectives with the the height hovering over it which is time um so when do we have history i mean technically it, it i guess it must have been passed but clearly we make history from the current reporting um that's going on at the time right now as we speak mm. I just remind uh, listeners that they're tuned to talk of the towns. We're talking about how to teach history. Just heard from Mark Puglisi, a history teacher, Matt Desdon High School. And uh, we're joined also by Julie Rinsky, who is the director of teaching and learning uh, also at MDI High School. Liz, where would you like to take this conversation? Yeah, I want to I want to get back a little f closer to the shallow end so we don't we don't cause any existential crises in our listeners. Um, Julie, what? But but it's all it's all great. And it's all very much part of it. Um, when school folks talk about social studies, those of us who have been out of school for a long time, what are we talking about? What what does social studies include? Um, it, it covers a, a lot. Okay, so economics, um, how we meet our needs and wants, right? Um, geography, you know, how place impacts the development of culture, um, history, of course, and I think we've exhausted that one. Um, social Sociology, right? How do groups influence um, the way we develop? Uh, psychology, how do individuals and and how is how is the way we are comprised as human beings influence, you know, how we participate as members in a community? And then um, philosophy, right? This is the, you know... Um, it, it, it's the it, it's it's like it's like the difference between history, I think, and philosophy and history is like empirical knowledge. Right. And, and I guess I'll piggyback on that conversation. It's the stuff that we've verified right through observation or experience. But then there's theory. Right. It's like policy. <laughs> That's all philosophical, not proven quite yet. Right. So engaging in that kind of philosophical realm to sort of problem solve um, to move things forward is is another key component. I think I covered them all. Mark, did I miss something? 
No, I think you, I think you, I mean, it's basically what you're right. It's the social science categories, um, you know, economics, philosophy, which is uh, very important to me. Um, Right. Sociology, psychology, all of those things come to bear in the social sciences. Yeah. Okay. So maybe a non-school person way to ask the question about goals. What are our goals for the students is, uh, what do you want your students to know and be able to do? Like, say, maybe if Julie could start with by by eighth grade promotion, and then maybe if Mark has brief thoughts about by high school graduation. <laughs> We're right in the middle of this, aren't we, Julie? We are. We've done a lot of work um, pre-COVID to sort of kind of rewrite our mission. And um the problem with writing a mission, of course, is that it's not really a mission unless you can rattle it off real quick. And um, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed that I, I might need to refer to it. <laughs> right. um, so I'm, not, I'm actually going to pull it up. Um, cool. But um, let, let me just take a second here. Mark, do you want to mm-hmm. fill in the time here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, at, at the basic level, I personally... When a kid leaves my class, I would love it if they can, at the uh, very much so, that they can uh, have a, a health healthy method of thinking, of approaching things that are provided to them. I mean, history provides a great laboratory for you to be able to think about things, current events, things, or reverse the thing that Ron, you know, gave us. You know, it gives us a chance to think critically to be able to corroborate let's think about let's think about the problems we're having right now with sort of like political tribalism and you know um the the stuff that's really plaguing us you know internet false information and stuff let's think about the antidote to that which is what can we think critically about things can we be skeptical without being cynical um can we check our own thinking how do we get out of our own thought bubble right by being presented with things that sort of challenge our worldview. So that at its very basic level is what I want. I want kids to be um, critical thinkers, to be um, epistemologically humble, to be, to be not caught up. Um, I think that I'm happy with them knowing what they think they know, but I want them to, to pause occasionally and actually ask themselves. Now, do I know that this is right? Like that would be a great thing. And that's asking a lot, but that's like the basic stuff. And Julie's got the the mission statement. Well, yeah, you actually, you spoke to it. So you must really know it. You live this. (laughs) Um, So in our uh, district, we've written five um, kind of mission goals. And one, we want all of our students to understand perspectives and motives of people in different times and places. We want them to be critical consumers and communicators of information be conscious of the impact of power and privilege, make thoughtful, ethical, informed decisions, and actively engage to work towards a just and equitable future. So you're talking about citizenship, um, especially on that last, um, but but it takes all of those things to make a good citizen, um, someone who acts on on their beliefs and and their knowledge. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I really love that um, we seem to have progressed in not too many generations from a a sense of memorizing facts and figures to a very clear focus on the the student, um, as Julie put it, 
as the sense making and what do you make of it all that the mm-hmm. the job's not done if the student hasn't been asked that mm-hmm. which is very cool and much right. more and like citizenship of course we you know you run the danger of being only critical thinking and not not having the content to it's in balance because you know you know in computer speak garbage in garbage out so if you're going to be a good citizen and you're going to have a um, a debate, you need the skills that Julie just outlined. You need to be a good listener. You have to have critical thinking skills, but you have to approach the conversation with some knowledge base, you know, and like we, we can't have policy discussions if we don't even agree about the basic data. Um, and we've, you know, the past several years now, I mean, there are policy decisions and um and and discussions and social discussions that are going on when people are talking past each other um so it's it's you're right we don't stop at the content anymore right it, there's no doubt about it we don't just do you know what was the capital of or you know memorizing the presidents but knowing the actions of several presidents and maybe mentioning one or two so that when you're thinking through these things, you can think clearly about it. That, that there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question again. I, we've got some wonderful topics ahead of us, but what makes a good historian? Uh, and and do you um, teach from a history text, or are you looking at a variety of things? What, what what's the current classroom look like these days in terms of using using historians? Um, and and versus a history text, which I probably grew up with. Julie, you want to speak to that from the bird's eye view, and then I can talk about my experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know the textbooks are, I mean, are, are you know very rarely used um, by history teachers um, in the state of Maine. You know, we're not Texas. We're not told you have to be on this page at this time where they have a very, very strict kind of scope and sequence that it's tied to a textbook. So um, teachers in Maine have a lot of support with local control. They're allowed to kind of um, develop deeper inquiries instead of quick surveys. And so the, the textbook anyways never goes deep. It's very surface level. And um, if you know, if you've been, you know, we've worked with textbooks before, every textbook's different, every textbook says it a little differently, and it's often very shallow and sanitized. And that's, that doesn't make for fun history, right? Like when everything is just a list of facts. Um, So to get a little deeper, you need to go to the sources, who was there, what did they say, right? Like, like, let's look at some primary documents. Let's look at some secondary documents. This is what they said they said. Um, How does this, you know, again, it speaks to those, you know, sourcing, corroboration, contextualization, and so forth, where you support the sense-making, right? Well, what's the real story here? Um, Mark? (laughs) Yeah, I I will uh, make the one, I, I don't generally use a text, but I do in one class, actually, and that is, um, advanced placement, United States history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and and I will talk about that text in a minute. Um, that actually is a college textbook and it is written by, it has several, several authors, but it's not written by committee. Um, so it's got um, Blight from, from uh, Yale, who's just who won a Pulitzer for writing the Frederick Douglass biography, Mary Beth Norton from, where does Mary Beth teach? Um, uh, up in Rochester, I think. Um, great historian in terms of women's history and colonial era. 
Um, if you look at the biography of the authors, the authors are actually real practicing historians. And the chapters change in um, the voice, et cetera. And the reason that I use a text for that class is because that class is a soup to nuts, top to bottom, United States history thing. Now, and I need I need a basic, I need a basic compendium of knowledge for to operate from. In addition to that, it's not just the text. Um, they get uh, readings, primary sources, as Julie just pointed out. Last night, it was an assignment from a guy named David Walker, who was a free African-American abolitionist um, in the 1830s, or secondary historians. Uh, tonight, they've got an assignment from a woman named Sarah Evans from a uh, women's history book for the United States. Um uh, they get from me, they get a lot of excerpts from uh, known and somewhat not known historians just to get different writing styles, different takes on things, and plenty of uh, primary sources, as Julie said, plenty of documents, uh, narratives. And watching the interplay between those other texts and the textbook is a fascinating thing. Um, uh, I do, for example, I, I do do this um, activity where we, I distribute, I have a, a load of textbooks in my room. I mean, variety of them. And I'll give the kids uh, each a different textbook. And it's when we're studying um, uh, European white interaction with Native Americans after the Civil War, the West, you know, and I make them, I have them look at the narrative from these different textbooks concerning the Indian Wars of the West, culminating in Wounded Knee. Um, and I have them choose the five most important people or most important events that a fifth grader would have to know to understand this. And it's fascinating. It's a fascinating thing because, you know, they come up with different, first of all, they come up with different lists because the authors feature different things. And then we look at the vocabulary of it, you know, like the it's the battle of Wounded Knee or it's the, it's the, you know, it's it's not the battle of, it's the massacre at Wounded Knee. Um, you know, at Wounded Knee, you know, a shot was fired. You got to be careful of the passive voice. Um, and if you get an insight as to what can happen, <laughs> what can happen if you're relying on that single source. Um, and uh, so to piggyback what Julie said, I mean, I, I use it for AP US history. My other classes, I, I don't use a textbook. I'm constantly fishing for sources that are reliable that are from print things online books that i have and so um they get a lot of handouts and a lot of stuff that they read online that's where we are with me anyway liz follow-up questions well i just have to take a take the privilege to say that my favorite part of my own ap us history class was hofstadter and who else edited editions mm -hmm. of supreme court decisions and yep. that was, I mean, we, I think we had a textbook too. I don't remember anything about it. I remember being taught to refer to books by their authors yes. in our textbooks, Absolutely, which was Absolutely. super awkward at first, but really important. Absolutely. I, I will refer to as Norton or Hofstetter says, and yeah. you know, I, I guess I, because, you know, AP US history is supposed to be kind of like a college class yeah. in high school. So part of my thing, and Julie mentioned historiography is to mention, is to mention the big names in history for the kids who are going to go on to be history majors. So you want to hear about Gordon Wood. You want to hear about Charles Beard. You want to hear about Hofstetter. You want to hear about 
Henry Steele Commonger, you want to hear about. Um, there's there's a whole panoply of people. And to investigate what their thesis is, because right. there's different historical schools that happen in different times. So, like, what is this, what's going on underneath this? And of course, the somewhat at one time controversial uh, Howard Zinn, who is, yeah. you know, uh, you know, he's he's a rock star for people for actually, you know, breaking a barrier to bring a lot of history that was under the radar mm. to the surface, sure. which I think now makes this actually makes its way more often. Uh, than we think into mm -hmm. textbooks, although not textbooks that necessarily sell into the California and Texas and Florida market. So I'm fascinated with this, thinking about your students in your AP class. Um, do they do have this textbook that's a really great one, but do they ever, do you ever hear in class them questioning the perspective of the author of that chapter, chapter of the textbook? Does it Oh yeah, Does that come I, mean, up? I love that. That's so great. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I mean, a couple of years ago, um, there was a high sensitivity to, for example, racial justice, um, and um, you know, uh, and kids were quite sensitive to language, how things were presented, um, and if you like uh, the Cold War chapter. Um, uh, you know, I will ask them, you know, say, so what do you think? Like, what's the voice in here? What's going on? Like, I asked them, you know, if you're going to just as a thought experiment, you know, who's responsible for the Cold War? Was the United States with the Soviet Union, which in some quarters of the country would be considered to be unpatriotic. But it's just a thought experiment. You know, it's to get them to man man manipulate the material. And they're they're really interesting. They say, oh, you know, it really sounds like that the, the author is quite skeptical about the United States. Um, and then it's my job, my ethical responsibility to make sure that, that the kids understand that and understand it and give voice to maybe a counter narrative, given that the counter narrative is within the realm of reasonability. Like I will not, I, I will not make the argument that something other than slavery was the cause of the civil war. Um, I won't do that. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, all communities cut which way or another, right? Lots of communities are liberal or conservative or whatever. So it's my responsibility of the kids hear all of those voices and all the kids' voices are, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, protected or honored, mm -hmm. you know, within yeah, the limits. I mean, too. You know, so anyway, that's my. Cool. Well, that's a super great segue. Yes. I'm just going to remind listeners who they're listening Perfect. to, because um, sometimes uh, people tune in to talk of the towns midway, and they like to know that they're listening um, to Julie Koblinski, who is the director of teaching and learning at MDI High School, and Paul, I mean, Mark Puglisi, who is a teacher of history there at the high school, um, joined, um, of course, by Liz Graves and me, Ron Beard. But Liz, go ahead. Okay, thank you. I was going to switch to go over to Julie. We just started in on... Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, um, opinions about uh, about history from from the outside of the school system and uh, in general, as, as basic as you can, could you help us understand the roles of, as I understand it in Maine, there's the state legislature, the lawmakers, there's the State Department of Education who helps somehow organize state policy and standards, local school boards, administrators, teachers, uh, 
what and who does what <laughs> in shaping? <laughs> well, you basically explain the arc, explain the arc, hierarchy. So you've got that right. Um, we do have to comply with state law, right? So you know, Wabanaki studies is a state law, and um, do we comply with it? Yes, and not as well as we'd like to, right? Because it's one thing to make a law; it's another thing to support <laughs> with resources and curriculum. Yeah. You know, and I know our teachers are actually working really hard to kind of do this law justice, um, but they're not pro- they're not professional curriculum developers, right? Like so, uh, it, particularly at our lower grades, they're they're experts of everything, right? Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard. You know, Mark spends a lot of time in history, and you know they're really focusing on reading instruction and early math, you know, and so then to then have sort of this other kind of um difficulty of saying, well, what's the materials I can use here to to do this justice? So um, I belong to uh, an organization called the Maine Curriculum Leaders Association. It's all the curriculum folks in the state. And this was our topic this morning. And we're putting together a group to try to develop more user-friendly resources. So yes, there's a law and we comply um, in to the best of our ability. And then there's the state, which gives guidance. Um, So we have, you know, graduation requirements and you have to take a year of U.S. history, but beyond that, it's pretty vague. Um, there are some standards which are written a little broadly, so there's some room for interpretation, um, and that's really where the local control uh, comes into play. And um, in terms of school board, they write policy, mm-hmm. so they write the the laws that now that you know govern our school. So um, you know, uh, and then they hire the superintendent. So in terms of influence, we have a good working relationship with our school board, but our school board doesn't say what is to be taught. Like that's not their, that's not their purview. So that's actually, um, I was getting ready for this going, whose job is that? Oh, it's mine. So (laughs) (laughs) it's actually, that's my job. And so, um, you know, I work with a team and I work with teachers and, um, you know, we decide. Yeah. So it isn't uh, always that, it, or at least from um, current news reports, um, that um, way in which you've described it here in Maine and on Mount Desert Island isn't necessarily uh, how it works elsewhere. Um, well, um, even in the state of Maine, I mean, okay. you can hear reports of, you know, school boards discussing, because certainly, you know, the public is allowed to speak, you know, um, and and give testimony and, and so forth. And the school board is allowed to respond to the public concerns. And there's been some stuff in the news about books, like specific books. Um, it's, a, it's really not a school board, you know, unless they make it a policy, it's really not a school board decision. But sometimes the superintendent, you know, who's hired by the school board feels pressure, right? And then we'll make that decision and kind of on behalf of the school board. So that's where that kind of plays into the power structure. Um, so, if, so if, it's not really um, designed to be that way. Right. So do you get um, um, here or do you know of, of uh, uh, parents or citizens asking questions about what's taught um, in history, for instance? Um, what, what, what's that? What's that kind of dialogue like? What can you yep. kind of reflect a little bit about that? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I've been in this district for over 10 years, and I think my early experiences 
in dealing with questions about curriculum had to do with parent objections to, you know, novels, right? Like it's always the the English book they choose, right? A coming of age novel, maybe there's some sexual content in there that they're not comfortable with. Um, and the law is we provide a substitute. I mean, that is the law. So we work with families. They are always allowed to come forward and say, this doesn't match my values. And um, we honor that. We respect that. We have a conversation about it and we try to come up with a solution for it. Um, but there is also a thing called intellectual freedom, right? And the, a parent is not allowed to infringe upon the rights of other parents' children. So they don't get to make the call for everybody. So, um, you know, we, we've always done this since the you know beginning of Mark and I being in education. Um, as Mark mentioned, uh, you know, in, uh, in response to a different question, there has been a heightened sensitivity when it comes to the topic of race. And so that has been a, a, a question that has been risen more often. And, um, you know, the the part that I have struggled with is we've always talked about these things. <laughs> this isn't new. We talk about institutions. I mean, Mark mentioned, you know, the cause of the civil war with slavery. That's empirical knowledge. We don't contest that, right? That's what we have seen through observation and experience and experts in the field. So we don't, we don't negotiate that. Um, and we talk about it and policy is really where the issues come. Uh, structural racism exists. Uh, what do we do about it? Well, now that's up for debate, right? And 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 actually, I want to throw the word debate out the window. One thing that we have worked really hard on, quite diligently, to support our mission is move away from debate. This is dialogue. These are real problems. We all have to live with them. If we're creating a just and equitable future, we need to sit at the table with each other, actively listen, make sure everyone is participating, everyone is cooperating, and that you know we are solution oriented. Um, we're not going to solve our problems if we're fighting for who's right and who's wrong. We really need to, we need to be compromising. And to do that, we need to be listening. And then just looking at the policies and not looking them as um, fixed identity issues. Like if you believe in this policy, you are this person. It's like, no, this is a public policy. We, we haven't quite fully figured out if this is going to work or not. <laughs> and we'd like to explore it. And here's my reasons why. And then here's my counter uh, to that. And and maybe we can compromise and move forward. So that is absolutely what we're trying to teach our kids um, to listen. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, you know, the question about, you know, race and other topics, um, I usually just say, well, can you tell me what you're really specifically asking about? And I'll tell you if we're teaching that, that or not. And more often than not, I'm not getting a lot of specificity. So it's really hard to respond. But you know, you try to do so compassionately because people come forward out of fear, right? And we're trying to build bridges with our community and, you know, promote healing in our community, which means we want to be able to talk to each other. That's so helpful, Julie. Yeah, Mark. You have to also remember that, the you know, a lot of the thing we're hearing these days are people objecting to, um, they're being critical of things like critical race theory, which I, I'm not really sure I I mean, I don't really know the ins and outs of it. I know the contours of it. And so they're afraid that the historical narrative that's coming down is being too critical of U.S. history. But you can you got to know that there's also a large population, a coterie of parents who maybe think that we're we're not doing enough to focus mm -hmm. on racism stuff, that we're being too timid on those things. And so, mm -hmm. you know, so we're 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 doing our best. 
by trying to keep what we do to what, as Julie said, what right now people in the field are discussing as, you know, within the bounds of like a legitimate discussable scholarly uh, grounding, you know, that's, that's where we are. I mean, not that we can't entertain things uh, that are sort of out of left field, but generally speaking, um, we are, we are teaching, I'm way willing to show people my sources about what we're doing um, and why it's the focus that we do. Um, So, and and that's, I'm just going to do it. I mean, you know, yeah. I personally have not gotten an angry phone call from anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, it, it may actually happen that it comes from a side of, you know, um, shouldn't we be, you know, pushing this a little harder, like, you know, looking at at the history of injustices in U.S. history. Yeah. I've, I've just really, really struck. Thank you. Um, by uh, the phrase that Julie used, that it just seems like one of the keys to this whole conversation. So she said, this isn't new for us. You know, that this general topic has only been in the, in the news news a lot in the last three or four years, but you all have been doing it your whole careers and it's not your first rodeo. And that's very comforting <laughs> to, to those of us who are not educators. Um, Julie, you, I want to ask a little more about the... Um, you mentioned the mission statement and a pro- project that's ongoing for the the MDI school mm-hmm. system, all of the schools, not just the high school um, social studies curriculum. Who who all is involved in that in that project? Is it just teachers? Well, it- it's not like a special project. We're always like ongoing revising what we do. So. Um, in that, that that's in all disciplines, right? So I'm I'm wearing my all disciplines hat here. <laughs> um, we're always trying to do best practice, right? And we learn, we keep learning and get new research, new information on what's going to be best for kids. And our kids are changing, right? So what we gave you twenty, you know, however many years ago, is not going to work today. And um, there's no doubt we have been kind of reduced to a very humbling position once again, like we were on a good clip before COVID and, you know, here, here we go again, you know, we're dealing with um, quite different kids now and uh, self-regulation is a huge issue. It's shared across the country. Um, We have, um, you know, lots of mental health issues that we're dealing with. Um, I just attended the, you know, conference for the brain from Harvard. Um, they put it on every year. It's really very good. And they were just, you know, talking about COVID. We were on that clip of, um, difficulties with mental health and that exponential increase COVID just draw the curtains back and let us all see it for it's for what it really was. Yeah. Um, so it didn't necessarily, I mean, it, it could certainly was a catalyst, but more of an exposure of what was happening. And, and the interesting um, takeaway from that is it has to do with the speed of change, that by nature, we're all anxious when it comes to change, even if it's good change. And the way our culture is moving is we're just changing so quickly. Information is coming in so quickly. You know, we pivot so quickly and that escalates our anxiety, right? And our young kids don't have that ability to regulate that level and, and, and are really vulnerable. So we're sitting here going, 
what matters first is that our kids are grounded. <laughs> I mean, Mark and I have a good time pontificating about the meaning of life and history and all that good stuff, but really we have to create a safe environment and Mark, Mark knows this, we're on the same page, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, where kids feel like they're safe and connected and can actually be present to learn. So um, we're learning all over again. And so, you know, what are we doing to move history forward? Look, we're just grounding right now um, and trying to make sense um, of what's happening. Yeah. And I wonder if that's connected. Mark, I was going to uh, bring up something you already did. Um, and I'm actually going to quote you back to yourself, but I'm going to do it here because I think I wonder about how this, what you called uh, epistemological humility <laughs> is related to the health and the grounding and the just take a breath um, that Julie's talking about. So we had you quoted in the Islander a number of years ago saying that oh, it's heartening. No. It's heartening to have students disagree with you, that, that you'd rather have them tell you they're, you're full of it rather than just sit there and shrug. And the, the subtitle of the story was Shrugging is the Enemy. Uh, so you said the thing we need to instill most in our students is self-checking, a little self-doubt about what, why they think something. Do I think that or do I know it? Can, can you say more about how you think about that? Yeah, that's become, as poor Julie, she's going to hear this again, that's sort of become sort of a mantra with me because you know when we were going through school it the the um when i was going through school not we but when i was going through school um there was you know that the higher order education kind of a thing was if you weren't presented with information well how do you go and find it right well you learned how to use the remember these encyclopedia and the card catalog right like you yeah. well we don't have that problem anymore there's uh, there's a lot of information but you know information doesn't make for knowledge necessarily it, not in the platonic sense so um we have tidal waves of data of of factoids or i don't even know if it's facts of of things out there that you can look up whether it's um it's, it's content true, it's yeah. content okay, right yeah. right the content whether it's true or relevant or useful or massage is a different issue. And we also have people who actively are massaging that content to elicit responses from you for their own gain, political, economic. They want you to respond in a particular way. And so, you know, um, it, it, to inoculate kids from this kind of, um, I don't know what the, bad thinking infection or something to inoculate you um, we can try to regulate what happens over over the internet or other ways right we can we can try to control the pipe but we have to get kids and this is kind of a grounding thing as julie would say we have to get kids to try to as best they can have the tools to negotiate all of that to think about it and to be and to be, um, you know, like to, to do a self-check, like, you know, you get into a groove and you start thinking in a certain way and you're going down this road and you get stuck in that. And sometimes if you don't check yourself, you can't find out what is really what the reality is, because there's so many people trying to create those realities. Um, it's really, I feel for kids because it's really it's a really tricky, tricky thing. 
Um, and so slipping into philosophy, it's kind of more, it's a very philosophic uh, way to think about it. I mean, today I was just, the past two days, we've been, my sophomores and I've been learning about the allegory of the cave from Plato, you know, and it's, it's like, it always comes down to the allegory of the cave. It is everything. (laughs) It is everything. The allegory of the cave is all Julie. It's the beginning and the end. Um, But you know what? Those, those old guys, they had something there, um, even though I don't want to live in Plato's utopia. Um, but they they had something there um, about, you know, Socrates' famous line, of course, is, you know, I'm the wisest man in Athens because I know I know nothing. <laughs> you know, that's his, that's his whole thing. Um, and, and I don't want the kids to feel like they know nothing, but I want them to have enough um self-checking that they can engage in a conversation and be all ears like you if you already know something what do you have to listen to somebody for right all you're going to do is throw insults you have to be able to to say to yourself uh you know i got something to learn here which is what julie was talking about with debates you know i don't really i have I don't really have debates in my class anymore. I have roundtable discussions, you know, but, you know, was the American, to what degree was the American revolution really a revolution? Let's figure it out together. You've got this, you've got this author, you've got this author, you've got this author, put it together. What have we got? So that's, that's what I'm after. And that's what I think that the Republic really, really needs. I mean, I think, I think it's like a vital thing. And again, History is just a way to practice it because history, let's face it, history is just a series of policy decisions, right? <laughs> like, like the any like when people were like, you know, the Missouri Compromise was in the newspapers at one time. People were going to bars and pubs and saying, "What do you think about Missouri? You know, should Maine join the Union?" That was a current event. Well, if it's a series of policy discussions, you can also approach history. Each thing is a policy thing. And like try, try to like what what were the forces here that were going around inside this and how did they negotiate or not negotiate it? That's the thing. So that's I hope that was a long-winded answer, but I hope that sort of answers your question to a degree. It does. It connects to something we talked about six months or so ago on this show with some folks in the media. Um, and Kate Koff, who writes for the main monitor told us something that's stuck with me, which is that we have many, not more, not just more, but many more now paid communications professionals in this country, people whose job it is to, as Mark said, massage information than uh, professional journalists. So there there are more people um, getting information out with a goal than people with the goal of getting the information out. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it used to be, I mean, you know, (laughs) The other great use of history is that, you know, people, people have this view that things have never been as bad as they've been, you know, <laughs> and it's so that we panic and, you know, that there isn't, there is, I don't want people to, to not want to make things better, but there is something to, to have a little perspective. So, you know, in the floor of the United States House of Representatives, people used to stab each other, right? They used to physically attack each other during debate on the floor of the house. Um, we talked about, you know, the, the violence on the streets and Jacksonian America saw mob violence over mob violence over mob, you know, two actors in New York, one was a Englishman, one was an American and the, the Americans didn't like it. And there's mobs and people died, you know, um, 
so um, it gives you some perspective that, you know, things, uh, things actually have been as bad before. And one of those things was the partisan press. I mean, look at what they, if you look at what they, you know, Jefferson said about Adams and Adams and Jefferson, um, it would, it would rival some of the junk that you see kicking around now. Um, and we sort of for a while graduated to this idea of journalism, trying to be objective, um, which ironically came about because people wanted to sell more newspapers outside of their bubble. When printing became very cheap with the penny press, it was like, I want a bigger market. I better just report the facts so more people buy my stuff. People stopped buying subscriptions and they started buying from the newsstands. And so we got this journalism. Well, again, technology slammed into us and changed things. Um, and we haven't figured out what to do with that yet. But um, I'm I'm hoping that we can have a little bit of a piece in fixing things. I think that's the, that that notion of 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 history history and historians helping us understand our present situation, um, and where where we came from, and what's been what's what's the same, and what's different. That's so important in today's world because it's coming at us so fast. So we that's taking a step back, um, so that we can get some perspective, as you've already pointed out, very important. It's it's perspective, but it's also, you know, the, the historical narrative, the story, and this used to be one of our essential questions, is like the story conditions what we think now, right? So the, the most concrete example is Reconstruction after the Civil War, right? So, you know, the, the dominant narrative that happened by historians actively, Columbia University, was that, you know, the legislatures in the South were dominated by freed Black people. They did all these terrible things. They were completely corrupt. They spent too much money. They went into debt. It was horrible. And these, you know, the redeemers, they were called, came back into power, saved the day, brought good government back. And there you go. Well, that story justifies keeping African-Americans out of power. It, 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 it justifies subjugation. It doesn't give African-Americans their due. It does a lot of things for a story that was essentially created purposefully to to justify grabbing power back from um from african americans who had attained some power elected you know, officials elected officials elected. I mean, they were elected they were elected yeah they were they were elected and you know when we empowered people to vote in the south black people to vote you got you know you got legislatures that yes spent a lot of money on what infrastructure public hospitals public schools so, you know, we started to change that narrative in the 40s with the historians like C. Van Woodward, um, W.B. Du Bois actually is the first guy to look at this and say, hold on, Reconstruction was not a disaster. It was, it was a, a, you know, it was actually, it was the second founding. You know, it was like, think about bringing equality into the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, revolutionary, you know, and, and that narrative... That narrative is um, is still haunting us to this day, and that's why the story is so important. Mm-hmm. Liz, do you want to ask that last last great question so are before we, we a, wrap up? We have a question we always end with, and we've gotten a lot of good thinking around it. But in summary, what do each of you most want citizens and policymakers to keep in mind when it comes to the teaching of history in public schools? And just like briefly, two sentences. <laughs> briefly, yes. 
uh, for me, it would be, um, and I don't know, I've never done a statistical study, but I would argue, and I'm just going to take a leap, that I think most history teachers are really just trying to do the right thing. You know, we're trying our best. And, you know, for those, there, there are people in the country who think that somehow history teachers are trying to indoctrinate their kids. You know what? I can't get my kids to do their homework. There's no indoctrinating these children. Okay. <laughs> So, um, so the, but seriously, I, I, th we're trying to do the right thing and we're really trying to get your kids to, to just think a little bit more. Julie, Julie. Um, I guess I'm going to look at it more of a recruitment, um, approach. Uh, we are in the middle of a national teacher shortage yeah. and it's just going to get worse. So I think beating up on the people who are trying to do this job is not a good strategy. We also know that 60, over 60% 60 of the people who teach, teach within 20 miles of where they grew up nationwide. Oh, so wow. We need to grow our own teachers. So I, I know I'm making a concerted effort to, you know, look at kids now and say, yeah, this is a great profession, but how do we sell that, you know, when we're under attack, right? So our own teachers are telling students sometimes, that's not a good, good path for you. And we want to change that. It is a beautiful path. Mm. Thank you both. Um, we've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. Please tune in for our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio um, this afternoon, Mark Puglisi, history teacher at MDI High School, and Julie Kublinski, who is the director of teaching and learning MDI school system. Uh, thanks to uh, our underwriters. Thanks to our engineers, Amy Brown and Joel Mann, for engineering. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6. Liz Graves and I are the producers and hosts for Talk to the Towns. And this is Ron Beard wishing you a wonderful afternoon. <laughs>